it seems that every year the Easter decorations begin a little bit earlier. Have you noticed? They'll, they'll be putting the Halloween stuff out very, very soon. Watch for that. And, of course, there's all kinds of fun angles, and there's commercial angles, and there's candy angles to all of these celebrations, even Easter. And I was thinking uh, last night after our first Easter celebration service about the story of an American missionary who had befriended uh, some people deep in, uh, deep in Brazil near the Amazon River in what an an anthropologist would call a pristine culture. In other words, one that has been pretty much untouched by modern life in the Western world that you and I experience. And through a long series of events, he was able to bring one of these tribesmen back, and they went to New York City. And a, a guy who didn't have plumbing or electricity got to see things like Times Square and You can imagine, that would have been a fun video to watch him taking all that in. And it got me thinking, if you took someone like that from a very distant culture that didn't understand or never experienced this Easter weekend in America, he would probably be confused in his own way. Because Easter, along with what we're doing this morning, has that Easter bunny element and a candy element. It's got to be really confusing because you turn kids loose in a grass field looking for Easter eggs. And those eggs presumably have been delivered by... Now, wouldn't an Easter chicken make much more sense? (laughs) But for some reason, the Easter bunny has delivered Easter eggs and candy companies, of course, are all over this. Jelly beans become a national obsession for about two weeks, I suppose, because they're in the shape of little tiny eggs, and even candy that isn't normally in the shape of an egg gains the shape of an egg, the world's best candy, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, (laughs) turns into an egg, and for reasons that science cannot explain, they taste better uh, in, in egg shape than they do in the regular cup shape. I know these things. I'm a connoisseur. And then, along with all of that fun, you've got people gathering in parks and beaches at sunrise and coming inside church buildings and singing these really joyous, loud, happy songs, singing and clapping along. And if someone was completely unfamiliar with the narrative, he would be surprised to know that what I'm about to tell you about, what you've been singing about, is a historical account of a Jewish man who lived some 2,000 years ago who was killed by the Roman Empire publicly by being fastened to a cross as many men had before he had been and many men would be before Rome expired. And then that his first followers, his disciples actually came to believe somehow that not only was he literally killed on a cross, that three days later, on a Sunday morning, very early, he rose from the dead. And because he had promised that he would do just that, and because he had opened their scriptures and pointed to them all of his ministry to them, that these were the very things they had been told and promised since childhood from their scriptures, that it was all true, and that he and he alone could give them eternal life and connect them to God. 
I think our Amazonian tribesmen would have a very hard time understanding how all of that fit together. I want to cut through everything extraneous and read an old letter, a 2,000-year-old letter, that explains the basics of what we're celebrating this morning. Would you open your Bibles if you have them? If you brought a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians 15. If you did not, you're welcome to look at one of ours. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take it with you. That's why it's there. And the passage I'm going to read to you from this long letter is actually printed inside your bulletin. I call it an unlikely letter because it is written by a former Pharisee. If you want to be mean in modern-day America, you might call someone a Pharisee. It wasn't an insult in those days. A Pharisee in the first century was an observant Jew, we may say an Orthodox Jew, and a member of the Pharisees was the strictest kind. They were meticulous about observing the law of Moses. On top of the law of Moses, they had put many of their own traditions, and they were zealous for them. They thought, as people do all over the world, that doing enough good things and avoiding enough bad things would earn God's favor and blessing, first on earth and later in heaven. And a man named Paul believed that, and he was chief among them. He had studied with the foremost religious teacher of his day and been his most outstanding student. So when Jesus appeared and he promised and explained that he was the Son of God who God had sent in fulfillment of all of God's promises in those Hebrew scriptures, Paul hated the very, the very idea. He was pleased with the death of Jesus, and he thought the resurrection was a hoax. In fact, because a great number of people believe that, he became a persecutor of the church, as he will later say in another one of his letters. In other words, you could have stood with me and Paul on an afternoon and watched other men take their outer coats off and lay them at Paul's feet, and he became basically the watcher of the goods while the other men killed a man named Stephen. Paul was dead set against Christianity. He thought it was a lie. He thought it was a hoax. He thought it was destructive of his culture. He thought it was destructive of his nation. He was completely set against it. But when I ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, what you're reading is a personal letter written by Paul defending the resurrection of Jesus. It's called Corinthians because Paul wrote it to an ancient Christian church in the city of Corinth, modern-day Greece. You can go there today. You can visit both the ancient city and the modern city of Corinth. They're about three miles apart. And it was not the sort of place that any observant Jew would ever want to be. In fact, this city, which was a port city and wealthy, and because, like many cities that are on the beach... It was dedicated to pleasure. It had a great deal of money. It attracted people from all over the world and invited them to have a good time. So much so that the city of Corinth in the ancient world became a verb. So if you Corinthianized, it meant you really went off the rails and went crazy with pleasure. I've, I've tried, and it's a family joke, we want to avoid our family name ever becoming a verb. Okay? You don't ever want somebody saying, man, that guy really garnered. You know, he really, 
You don't want your name to stand for anything shameful, to become a byword. That's what the city of Corinth was. But this Orthodox Jew who had become convinced that Jesus was actually telling the truth because by his own testimony, he actually met Jesus after Jesus came back from the dead, not only went to Corinth, he started a church there. In other words, he told them the story, I'm going to tell you. And because it's a Christian church made of normal people who have simply trusted Jesus for their forgiveness, it was a church with a lot of problems. And some of you dragged yourself to church this morning because you've been part of a church before and that church had a lot of problems. That's normal. I'm sorry that you went through that, but you should know from the very first Christian churches, that's, that's part of the experience. The Corinthian church, if you read the letter, they're suing each other. One guy is sleeping with his stepmother. And people in the church are defending that kind of behavior. So Paul writes them this long letter, pleading with them, begging them, reminding them of what he has taught them, and pleading with them to straighten things out. And at the very end of the letter, he goes to the heart of the issue. And that's my passage this morning. He starts telling them about the resurrection of Jesus. Because in their first few years with Jesus, they were finding this whole story hard to believe. The resurrection wasn't a Greek idea. They found the whole thing strange, as people still do today, influenced by Greek thought. So he wrote them 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter, the way the Bible has been divided into chapters and verses so that we can study it. It's a very long chapter, and Paul explains to them that when he told them about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he says this is a matter of first importance. This is the foundational idea. He says, if this isn't true, our preaching is vain. We're a bunch of liars. You're still in your sins. We may as well eat and drink because tomorrow we'll die. And that'll be the end of the story. But, he says, Christ really is risen from the grave. And this really is good news. It's amazingly good news, and what I want to do in the next 20 or 25 minutes is explain to you why the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is good news. Read with me 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul wrote, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, that's Jesus, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he raised on the third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, another name for the apostle Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is really all I want to share with you. If it's new to you, and perhaps it's not, but you haven't read it in a while, I'd invite you to read it again with me. Can you read it aloud just from your outline there so we all read the same thing? Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's writing about a real event. He wrote this letter 23 years after Jesus was killed on the cross and raised from the dead. And this is the central theme of Paul's life. Now, why in the world does Paul call this good news? Here's the first reason. This is the reason without which nothing else that I say matters. And no, you have no good reason to be here. The first reason the death and the resurrection of Jesus are good news is this. It's all true. You see, if this didn't happen, Paul's right. He'll go on to say in this chapter, if we only have hope in Jesus in this life, in other words, if Jesus is just a help to get us through this life a little bit better, but he's actually dead, Paul says we're the most pitiful people on earth. And let's just acknowledge that on the front side. If you've been singing songs about a man who's alive, who's actually dead, that's sad. If you're praying and nobody's listening, it's pathetic. If he's not actually alive, none of this matters. Paul dedicated his life to a lie, and so have I. And I'm orienting my life and having hope for eternal life on something that didn't actually exist, never actually happened, was some kind of elaborate hoax. How pathetic. Years ago, a when we lived in Mexico, a pastor was interviewed on national radio saying, what if it were conclusively could be proven that Jesus was actually dead? If we had DNA evidence and there was just no doubt about it, they found the body, he's dead. He never rose from the grave. What difference would that make? And he mistakenly said, it wouldn't matter. He's still a good idea. Maybe the spotlight got to him, but I'll just tell you straight out, he's wrong. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he's wrong. None of this matters. This is much more than a cultural milestone if it actually happened. If it actually happened, it changes absolutely everything. And in this passage we just read, Paul, in just a few words, gives the Corinthians two great reasons why they can trust that it's all true. The first thing he says is, all of this happened according to the Scriptures. In other words, what he's telling them is, you can look it up. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, when the Apostle Paul, an observant Jew, turned to Jesus, refers to the Scriptures, what is he talking about? Paul's talking about what you and I call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. To give you a visual, in my Bible, the portion that you can see, those are the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. 39 books. A lot of words. A lot of promises. And once Paul met Jesus personally, and that's what it took, he opened up his Bible again, and he saw that Jesus had been promised there all along. I won't take the time, and I don't have the time to walk you through all of those prophecies or to read many of them to you, but let me tell you what sorts of things you can look up for yourself. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, predicted that he would be born of a virgin because he was the Son of God. 
That, he said, is the first miraculous appearance that God is stepping into history. He won't be born as anyone else is born. That's why Christians celebrate Christmas. Daniel, under the power of a foreign empire that had taken him captive, spoke of the precise time of his death 600 years before Jesus was born, and he tied the time of Jesus' death to something where the clock began counting when a Persian king sent Jews in captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. These are things in history books. In other words, these aren't the hokey-pokey, vague, everybody-thinks-they-mean-different sort of prophecies that sometimes come out in the National Enquirer. A great one will arise from the East and speak with power. Well, that could be anybody. That could be a world leader or Kanye West. There's absolutely no telling. You can fit so many things into those kinds of promises. We don't know what you're talking about. Not Scripture prophecies. Zechariah said that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The Psalms detailed both his betrayal and his crucifixion, speaking specifically of the way that he would die, talking about the fact that he would be pierced hands and feet 1,000 years before he was born and 500 years before the Persians invented crucifixion. In other words, the precise manner of his death, the cause of his death was described in detail 500 years before it existed. There's no prophecies like these. I've just given you a few of them. David, in the Psalms, spoke specifically of what family he would come from, what tribe he would come from, the manner of his life, the manner of his death. Isaiah said that he would die among criminals but be buried with the wealthy just as he was. In other words, there are things prophesied about Jesus that he couldn't intentionally fulfill even if he tried to. It goes beyond probability. There's no, reasonable, there's no reasonable argument to believe that any of this could have happened by accident. A local mathematician who has since died, Dr. Peter Stoner, did the math on some of these prophecies. Bible students have identified at least 48 major prophecies in the Old Testament that explicitly and clearly talk about Jesus hundreds of years before he appeared. And Professor Stoner asked this question, what are the chances that these things could be randomly fulfilled? Let's just talk about eight of them. Here's his calculation. For eight of these things to come randomly true of a single person, he said, is a one in 100 million billion chance. Now, we live in the day of the national debt and big inflated numbers, but I can't visualize 100 million billion. So he gave a visual. He said, if you had a hundred million billion silver dollars, you could cover the great state of Texas two feet deep with those silver dollars. So that means if you painted one of those silver dollars red and borrowed a kid from that Easter egg hunt and dropped him off in Texas and invited him to wander around blindfolded and said, Billy, anytime you feel like it, reach down blindfolded and pick up a single silver dollar. The chances of eight of these prophecies coming true in a single person are the same as the chances of Billy finding that one silver dollar that you marked as the one. It's just not reasonable to believe that it happened by accident. What Paul is telling the Corinthians is, if you don't believe me, you can look it up. But that's not all he said. If you look back to the passage, he then went on to name people like himself who had seen Jesus alive. 
He said, for instance, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred brothers at one time. Let's start with them. Five hundred people saw Jesus at once, Paul says. He doesn't tell us who they are. They're now believers. I've been reading this stuff for years, and one of the early theories I came across to explain how 500 people could see a man who's supposed to be dead is the idea of hallucination. Now, without getting too deep into your personal story, have any of you hallucinated? (laughs) I have. I've hallucinated from sleep deprivation. When we were in college, we would do something stupid. We would take our finals in San Dimas, California, have lunch, and then get in these battered old starving college student cars that we drove and drive all the way to El Paso, Texas, which is 800 miles away. Have you ever driven through West Texas? Hope goes to die on Interstate 10 in West Texas. Okay? There is just absolutely nothing to keep you interested. So my brother-in-law and I were driving in separate cars. Our, our wives were with us. And we compared notes later. We hallucinated from exhaustion on that trip. In my case, I saw an oak tree growing out of the 10 freeway. And I swerved and looked back angrily, thinking, why in the world would someone allow an oak tree to grow? Interstate 10, I woke my wife up. She goes, what's wrong? I go, There's a tree back there. And she looked back and she said, you need to pull over and let me drive. I hallucinated. So did my brother-in-law. Here's the point. We didn't hallucinate the same thing. If I remember correctly, he saw men running across the interstate. I was swerving to miss trees. He was swerving to miss people. We were seeing things in a sleep-deprived state. We weren't seeing the same thing. If 500 people saw Jesus alive after his death, it can only mean one thing. It happened. If this were a legal process and those 500 eyewitnesses were given five minutes to tell what, they've to tell what they've seen, you would have 41 hours of eyewitness testimony. Now, suppose that somebody has accused you of something and the judge will allow 500 witnesses. He won't, believe me. He'll say, I've heard enough long before 48 hours of eyewitness testimony go by. But if you had 41 Hours of people, unrelated people, all telling the same story. Do you think you would get away with whatever you've been accused of? You wouldn't. It's credible. Now, those are 500 people, and we don't know exactly who they are, but we do know who the others are. Peter and James and Paul says at the end of someone born out of season as the last one born into the family, a surprise to everyone. I was born into God's family, though I didn't expect it and nobody else did. We do know who those people are. And here's the point of their story. Every single one of the people who were named, including the 12, they, were all, they all preferred to die rather than take their story back about the resurrection of Jesus. That's huge. Let's just be honest about the Christian church. You could accuse a lot of Christians, a lot of them making headlines, of having an interest in this story, of having something to gain from it. You could even accuse me of that. These first disciples 
the ones that went all over the world and were murdered rather than take their story back. They had absolutely nothing to gain from making the story up and maintaining it. They were tortured and murdered. In the case of Peter, who had been a skeptic, Peter died, church history tells us, crucified with this only difference. Before they killed him, he specifically asked, would you please crucify me with my feet up and my head down because I'm not worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. Peter was a fisherman before he started following Jesus. Paul was a prestigious religious teacher. He enjoyed the admiration of everyone in his society as someone to be trusted and respected. He turned his whole life around and ended up in the wicked city of Corinth telling people that he had previously hated that it was all true for the simple reason that it was. So you've got men writing across 500 years of history predicting something that will happen specifically 1,000 years after the first of them started writing and a whole bunch of people and not only the apostles but the early Christians who were famously thrown to the lions and killed for the entertainment of the Romans all willing to die rather than recant, rather than take it back. Now, how do you explain something like that? There's actually only one reasonable explanation, as hard and supernatural as it is to believe. It's good news because it's true. Secondly, Paul says, if you'll look at that passage, that all of this happened, that Jesus died, there's an important phrase there. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, what are the next few words? our sins. Someone will say, aha, I didn't think I could come to church without the preacher talking about sin. If the mere mention of sin turns you off, and it more and more does in contemporary America, give me a second, indulge me for a minute. It's not popular to call anything sin, and I get that. But here's the truth about sin. We all do it, and you account for it every day of your life. For instance, you locked your house before you came to church this morning. Why did you do that? Because people steal. When you go to the park, you watch your kids. You buy insurance. You look both ways. You check contracts. You listen carefully at the office for gossip and for not getting a square deal, for having an idea stolen or being cheated out of a promotion. We're so used to it that we don't realize that our lives are calibrated for the sin, the wrongdoing, and the selfishness of other people every single day of our lives, but they are. Everybody sins. The family strife that you had this week, the relationships and the friendships that have gotten a little cold, maybe there was some family awkwardness talking about what are we going to do this Easter, all of those things are rooted in the reality of sin. Someone became selfish, someone became self-seeking, someone became hateful, someone failed to keep a promise, someone betrayed somebody else. You really see it in our personal relationships. It permeates the whole world and that's why Jesus came and died, Paul says, for our sins, to take care of them. This is not only good news because it's true, it's also good news because it deals with the single greatest problem in the world today, which is people's propensity to do wrong. I could give you a thousand examples, but you already have your own. 
I'll just speak of myself. God tells me to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I don't. You know who I really love most of the time? Care to guess? I'm just like you. I love me. And I don't mean that you love me. I mean that you love you. God said, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. And, and we do. People in court are sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. People lie. The Bible says don't commit adultery, and many people do. And in the age of the Internet and online pornography, we stumble across something that Jesus said. He said, it's written, you shall not commit adultery, but I'll say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart. There's not someone, there's not anyone in the world who has gone through adolescence who doesn't find that deep inside of himself or herself is a lustful heart. We stumble on it all the time. And here's the religious trouble. People compare themselves with each other and feel better. I had a man tell me once, yes, I've cheated on my wife, but I don't beat her. <laughs> now, you may think that's absurd, but every single person on earth does the same thing. We don't compare ourselves with the standard of God. We compare ourselves with one another. And I can always find somebody who's doing it worse than I am. But here's the truth about the Bible. From the Bible, the wages of sin, Paul wrote the Roman church, the wages of sin is death. God is a holy God and he will always judge sin. Sin brings its own consequence and makes a wreck out of our lives, but there's bigger trouble than that. God who is holy, pure, righteous, and just, he'll deal with it as well. That's why Jesus came. If you look at the very prophecy of Isaiah that I was telling you about, Isaiah 53, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah is prophetically explaining why Jesus died on the cross. Here it is. But he was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, he died on the cross because we had gone too far. We had gone past the boundary that God established. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In other words, he was punished so that I could have peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, folks, there's as many ways to get lost as there are people in the world. Don't take any comfort that somebody else is so-called more lost than you are. There's no comfort there. There's no hope there. Isaiah acknowledges that every person on earth, like a sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But here's what God was doing out of his great love for us. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was taking the sinful, dark, shameful, selfish things in my heart that always expressed themselves. He was taking them to the cross and he was paying them for me. He was becoming my substitute. He was becoming my savior. Facing God's judgment for my sin and coming back to life because God had accepted that sacrifice. And Jesus wanted to keep his final promise that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. 
You see, this is good news not only because it's true, but because it solves the very greatest problem there is. News becomes better and better the bigger the problem it addresses. If you offer to buy me lunch, that's good news. But if I go through two weeks of testing and the oncologist finally meets with me and says, Mr. Garner, we were mistaken, you don't have cancer, that's much better news. So when I tell you that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose from the grave to deal with sin, that is the best possible news. He is conquering the final enemy, which is sin and death. And you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. And the final thing about this good news is this. This good news, it's not only true, it's not only good news because it deals with sin. It's the best possible news because this good news is for you. Look at what it says in Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, it is offered to you. It's for you. See, other people can receive good news all day long, but if it doesn't apply to me, it's good news for them, but not to me. When somebody else doesn't have cancer, that's good news for them, but if I do, it doesn't reach me, it doesn't help me, it doesn't give me hope, it doesn't assure me of life. This good news that I'm giving to you, Paul said, is a matter of first importance. I received it. I'm passing it on to you. That's all I'm doing this morning. As Billy Graham famously said, I'm just a beggar telling other beggars where I found bread. I'm telling you where you can be fed. I'm telling you where, and it's the only place where you can have the forgiveness of your sins. We'll let Jesus have the last word. This is what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. That's his offer. I have nothing to offer to you. I have good news to give you. That's all. I can't offer you that salvation. I can't offer you that forgiveness. I can only announce it. I can only give you, along with the Apostle Paul, my personal story that it's true and it changed my heart. And Jesus reoriented my life and cleansed my conscience. And I live with the day-to-day knowledge that though I still sin and I still blow it, Jesus really did pay for all of it and cover it and give me eternal life. And he has for hundreds of millions of people all around the world. And he'll do the same for you if you'll turn from your sin and you'll trust him. So you have a big choice to make. I'm actually putting you in front of a great gift But it's a gift that must be received. It's good news, but it must be believed. And that's what I'd like you to do this morning. If you're not absolutely certain that Jesus is your Savior, if your conscience isn't clear, if you wonder what would happen to you five minutes after your own death, if you're not sure of those things, Jesus understands that and Jesus died for that and he rose from the grave to give you that assurance. My personal invitation, person to person, is that you would turn to Jesus in prayer and say, I believe. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for comparing myself to others. I'm sorry for trying to do better and always failing. I'm sorry, forgive me. And he will. He'll save you. 
You may not understand it all. You may still have questions, but if you'll turn to him as a real living person and say, Jesus, as best as I know how, understanding what you've already shown me, I believe you and I trust you. Please save me. He will. That's why he came. That's why he died. And that's why he rose from the grave. What will that look like? I'm going to close our service by praying. I'd invite you between you and the Lord, if he's really listening and he really answers prayer, to turn to him yourself and say, Jesus, save me. And then before you go, if you would do us one more favor, we'd love to know that you did that this morning. If you'll take that connection card and just check the box that says that you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, we'd like to send you a Bible, some other resources to help you understand more and more about this wonderful Savior. Let me be clear. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'd love if you would come again, but I'm not asking you to get religious. I'm asking you to personally turn to Jesus and put your trust in him so that he, not the church, not a preacher, no one else, so that he may save you. Can we pray right now, please? Would you bow your head? Between you and the Lord. No pressure, no games, just an open invitation to receive the gift that he offers you. People experience it in different ways. I felt compelled. I fought him and I struggled against him, but ultimately I trusted him and it made all the difference. I have no idea how you're feeling and I don't need to know how you're feeling, but I am inviting you to trust Jesus right now and say to him, Lord, I believe I don't understand all of it, but I know I've sinned. And I'm sorry, and I want you to forgive me. And if you really can give eternal life, I ask you to do that today. Lord, as people consider what to do with you and your offer, give them grace. Encourage the one who is struggling the most. Maybe doesn't feel that you can forgive him or maybe is not entirely sure that you're real and you exist and you you can because they've been told all their lives that the supernatural is, is not a real thing. Draw people to yourself right now, I ask. Lord, in your name, as you have for so many others, invite people into relationship with you right now. Let them call out to you, Lord, in their own words. Give them the grace to trust you. And God, I thank you that you'll save them. We ask, Lord, all of this and many blessings more, Lord, that we will need to continue to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.